Thank you, Pastor Chad. It's good to be with you. It's good to worship together in song. It's uh, your Cornerstone Baptist Church, but it's been Charles Wesley Sunday. I saw that two out of three of our hymns were Wesley hymns. That's never a bad thing. And I'm very glad that we sang all five verses of And Can It Be. I think it's true that if you're in a church that starts saying, let's just sing the first and last, you're on your first step towards liberalism. Okay, that's an overstatement. Um, but let's sing them all. They wrote them all. Let's sing them all. They're not inspired like your scriptures. But Charles Wesley's close. So anyway, um, I need to get to my manuscript quickly before I lead us into heresy. So uh, if you'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2, the second chapter of Philippians. Uh, we've been, uh, we began our Philippians study uh, a few months ago and we're continuing the trek through it. You know, if you think about our order of service, uh, it's, it's actually very Trinitarian how it's set up. It's, it's not new. It's the way that uh, uh, Protestants especially have been doing services for um, centuries. But we start out with, a, with the belief that the Father, the only reason we know anything, the only reason we can have any type of worship is because the Father has taken initiative to reveal Himself. Um, and then we move through the service and we come to the culmination there, the climax where the, uh, we look as, as sinners and we confess and we uh, admit that there's a pardon given to us because of the work of the Son. And then we move to this point in the service where we uh, see the chief work of the Spirit. The chief work that the Spirit has given through the ages for the church is the Word of God. So when Jesus left, He said, I'm going to give you a helper. And the helper, the paraclete that He gave us was the Spirit. And what is it that the Spirit has done? It's not warm feelings. It's not ecstatic utterances. It's not dancing around. That's not the chief work of the Spirit. It's rarely ever the work of the Spirit to do those things. The chief work of the Spirit is to give us His Word. And so this is the moment when we gather around that. I, I was... I thought of that as I read this this week. This is out of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, uh, the Westminster Divines in the 17th century uh, answered, had this question and this answer, and I find it helpful. How is the Word, that's the Bible, how is it made effective to salvation? Answer. The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effective means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to His image and subduing them to His will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort, through faith unto salvation. So we join with centuries of, of other believers in believing that the preaching of the Word is how the Spirit is saving us unto heaven, unto the kingdom. So all that said, let's gather around this text, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead. I've titled the sermon, Humility, the Way of the Godly. I'm going to go ahead and read for us these first 11 verses. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1 So there so if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love 
any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, And every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this gathering. We thank You that it is You, Father, by Your sovereign, perfect will, have drawn us, every one of us, former enemies of God who have no desire on our own to know You or follow You, but would much rather enjoy our sin. But Father, we're here because long ago, before we were born, You established that You would be kind enough to draw us to Yourself. And we thank You. It is the work of the Son that made it possible that we could go from enemies of God to children of God. It is because of the punishment of the Son and the perfect life of our older brother, Jesus Christ, that we have life. His perfect righteousness is now ours. And so, Father, we come thanking You for the love that You have had, Father, for the encouragement that is in Christ Jesus, and Lord, for the fellowship that You have given us in the Spirit. We thank You for His work to draw us by Your Word, to draw us into the things of God, to change our hearts. This is the fellowship that He, the Spirit, does for us, and for that we're thankful. And so we come with lots of things on our minds, lots of things that are going to be biting for our attention even in the next few moments. Lord, we pray that You, Father, by Your Spirit, will do a work, a work through the preacher to communicate Your Word, and a work through the hearer to hear the Word, and a work all done by the Spirit to bring change in our lives that we would look more like Christ. We pray for it. This is Your time. This is Your way to work, because this is Your Word. And would You find Your people now submissive under it. Amen. Alright, so uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, um, the ESV translates it, so, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort for love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. The first word of the ESV there is so, 
Uh, but the New American Standard and the New King James Version seem to do a little bit better job with this as they translate the first word as therefore. Uh, and, and that seems to be more of what Paul is after. He's connecting what has gone before to what he's getting ready to say. There's a deep connection. And therefore, let's review. What is it that has come before? Well, a quick summary of Philippians chapter 1. Recall that the book opens explaining that it is from Paul and Timothy. They call themselves slaves or, or servants. The introduction there in verses 1 through 2 the book opens with explaining this is a text to the church at Philippi. Now the church at Philippi is a church that was founded by Paul on a second missionary journey. The birth of the church you can find uh, uh, written down in Acts chapter 16. And Pastor Mark opened our series by giving us a, a theme for the book. And I think I've got that up there. Here's our theme. Our life is fulfilling when we joyfully surrender to the will and work of the Lord Jesus as He has ordered it for our good and His glory. I think you're going to see that theme continue this morning. So that's our intro. And then as you move into verses 3 through 17, what we see Paul doing is he, he shows that the church is a group of, of uh, partners. They're believers partnering partnering together for the advancement of the gospel, for the advancement of the good news. And Paul even goes so far as to say his imprisonment, the fact that he's writing from prison, is all part of the sovereign work of God. And don't, don't worry, Philippians, God is still going to advance His gospel even though Paul is in chains. And then as uh, you move on towards verses 18 through 26, we, we see uh, that, that Paul's, Paul's way of viewing life, I call it a Paul's eye view of life, and it is extraordinary. So while you and I may be debating big things like whether we should stick with the iPhone or, or try a Samsung Galaxy, um, Paul is debating things such as, would it be better to go ahead and be executed and be with Christ or would it be better to stay and encourage the other believers here? His calculus is simple. King Jesus deserves all praise and honor and is the King of all kings. And therefore, I am a citizen of a higher kingdom and right now I want to live as if that reality is true. I want to honor King Jesus. And then we turn a corner there in verse 27 uh, as Brother Richard covered for us last time and, and did a, a great job of helping us see that Paul, and that section that begins in 127 goes all the way through the end of where we're looking today at least to two, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. What's the point of it? You are citizens of heaven, so live like citizens of heaven and in particular stand firm together in the gospel in your faith make sure you strive for the gospel don't be startled don't be surprised when suffering comes so all that said back to verse one back to the first word the word therefore connects for us what paul's about to say to all of that 
Paul is continuing with his description of what it means to be a model kingdom citizen. If you think that verses 27 through 30, they might be described as setting up what are the priorities of a model kingdom citizen. Then chapter 2, verse 1 through 11 is what is the attitude? What is the attitude of a model kingdom citizen? And here, the incredible argument begins. If you love arguments, if you like arguments, especially if you love them, you love the epistles. Paul is so tight with his arguments. And it's a tight argument here. We get four if clauses. The first three of these clauses, and I've actually put the NAS here, the the New American Standard, the first three of the clauses are actually structured similarly. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion. Okay? Well, you get three if statements that are structured similarly. Two of them mention two members of the Trinity. One mentions the second person of the Trinity, that is, if there's any encouragement in Christ. Another mentions the third person of the Trinity, if there's any participation in the Spirit. So there's an obvious question about the third one, right? Would that not be referring to the first person of the Trinity, that is, the Father? So when it says, if there is any comfort from love, is that talking about the Father's love? And I think the answer is yes. I think it is implied. I'm going to give you four quick reasons. I promise they'll be quick. I want to give you more. But here's four quick reasons for why I think that is the case. This is my four reasons for three. If that doesn't seem fun to you, I'm sorry. Um, so, welcome to my corrupt mind. Alright, so there are, there are three clauses. This is argument number one. There are three clauses... Two of them mention two other members of the Trinity. It seems very fitting and very much like the New Testament and very like Paul that the other one is speaking of the third missing person of the Trinity. That's argument number one. I actually am convinced enough by that one I don't need to go further for me, but you might not be, so further we go. Argument number two, writing in Ephesians chapter 4, which is written very similar time as Philippians... In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul puts forward a very similar argument as what he's doing here about unity in those first six verses. And he uses the entire Trinity and the the working of the Trinity to make that argument. So there's similarity between Philippians 2 and Ephesians 4. Argument 3. The plethora of statements, passages that speak explicitly of the love of the Father. So the third argument is there's a plethora of passages speak of the love of the Father. And I think I've listed those for you. One of them you're very familiar with. If God, that's the Father, so loved the world, right? Then He would have sent His only begotten what? Son, you got it, right? And that continues throughout the New Testament that we get a plethora of passages speaking of the Father's love. Fourth, Paul closes 2 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, with verse 14 of that chapter with this exact phrase. Tell me if it sounds familiar. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
Sound familiar? If there's any encouragement in Christ. Alright, so we've got grace uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and any fellowship with the Spirit. The, whole, the, love, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here's what's interesting also. Um, so that's my arguments, by the way. That's, that's it for the arguments. So I think the first verse is Trinitarian. You're wondering why I spent that much time with that. It, you'll understand after about the third hour. I'm just p- kidding. Um, uh, you're going to see why that is important to what we're up to, to see the Trinitarian nature of verse 1. That said, you know, Baptists for centuries have actually used this exact language in the closing of our covenant. We use a covenant that is the same. It hasn't changed across the centuries. It's the same beautiful Baptist church covenant. And it closes. We actually read this together Wednesday night. It closes with the last sentence. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. All right, all I said, I believe, verse 1 is about the Trinity. But why this if business? I mean, why would Paul say if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from the Father's love, is he doubting? No, it's, it's not at all. It's actually a beautiful tool of argument. You use this all the time, especially parents. You say things like this. If you have any desire to go to the pool, then you will fill in the blank, right? You do this all the time. Or as a supervisor, if you would like to keep your job, then you might want to, and you fill in the blank, right? Or a political strategist may say, if you have any love for democracy, do not vote for, you fill in the blank. I'm going to leave that one there. You can fill in whatever blank. It'll work. All right, anyway. All right, so... The point is a loaded one, of course. Of course there's encouragement in Jesus Christ. Of course there is comfort from the Father's love. Of course there is fellowship of the Spirit. And given all of that, and of course there's amazing affection and sympathy, and given all of that, Paul says, if all of that's true, then have this sort of attitude. That's his build-up for it. It is banking it on it, right? Well, what is it? What is the attitude that he wants us to have? Well, we're going to see that as we move to verse 2. Believe it or not, there's only one command given in the entire passage, and that's the first three words of verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. Complete my joy. That's his command. It's the only command in the whole passage. Everything else will be serving or explaining that command. Paul is asking that they complete his joy. So given the amazing love of the Father, given the encouragement of Christ, given the fellowship of the Spirit, would you Philippians make me joyous? Would you complete my joy by having a kingdom attitude? And here we go. The rest of 2 through 4 explains this kingdom attitude. Verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Do nothing 
from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So here we get right to the heart of my single point message. There is one principal attitude of the godly. And it is humility. There is one principled attitude of the godly. And that is humility. Paul tells them, just complete my joy by being united in mind and purpose. As kingdom citizens, he wants them to be united for the advancement of the kingdom, not for their own small kingdoms. Paul wants this because he knows that God wants this. And it's not that hard to understand, especially for parents. Few things warm your heart more than to see your kids care for one another. Almost nothing can warm your heart more than seeing that. And few things make you more upset. That's the kind way of putting it. That's the church way of putting it. Than when they treat each other poorly. It's the same thing for the heart of God. The churches compete with each other like businesses has to be a stench in the nostrils of our King. That Christians within a church treat each other poorly, it angers the Father. I don't care how spiritual I claim to be. If I can't get along with my brothers and my sisters, if I can't serve them and contribute, I am not pleasing the Father. Do nothing, he says, from your, for your own interests, but in humility. Go count others as more significant than yourself. I'm telling you, the more I've thought about this week, the more convinced that this is about as countercultural as it gets for us, especially for a self esteem generation. The idea of humility in our culture is so confused that I don't even know that we know what it looks like. I seriously heard recently a very public figure state to someone interviewing him that he is far more humble than the interviewer may realize. Seriously? That's a statement. It was a real statement. It's confused. But guess what? It was confused when Paul wrote to the Philippians in the Roman jail. How do I know that? Well, the Philippian culture was heavily influenced by Greek philosophers, and in particular, a guy by the name of Aristotle. And Aristotle gave us one of the most incredible works on ethics that have ever been read, or ever been written the Nicomachean Ethics. There he introduces a list of virtues that we as Christians would just find beautiful. Let me tell you some of them. He tells us about things like courage and self-control and generosity and honesty and friendship. And the list just keeps going on. But look long and look hard to the Nicomachean Ethics. And let me tell you a virtue you will not find. You will not find the virtue of humility. Instead, Aristotle very clearly says that a man of virtue esteems himself 
as worthy of honor. Such a man, says Aristotle, is justified in despising people who are not as honorable as he. And a man of virtue, he goes on to argue, is smart enough to treat people in the high station of life as high regards, in high regards. And just don't worry with the lowly people. That, says Aristotle, is virtue. Paul writing about humility would have been as senseless to the Philippians as it is to an American culture today. And yet, this idea of humility is heralded all across the New Testament. Citizens of the kingdom are to be humble people. They are to treat others with deep respect and care. But I'm telling you, you realize this is a distinctly Christian attitude. It only makes sense within a Christian worldview. Why? Because it requires seeing God as big as He is and seeing ourselves as broken as we are. John Calvin says this much better than I could. He describes how a man can come to the point of being humble. I think I've put this quote up there for you. Let me read it. He says, It altogether depends on a right estimate of God's gifts and our own infirmities. For however anyone may be distinguished by his illustrious gifts, he ought to consider with himself that they have not been conferred upon him that he might be self-complacent, that he might exalt himself, or even that he might hold himself in esteem. Let him instead of this employ himself in correcting and and detecting his faults and he will have abundant occasion for humility. In others, on the other hand, he will regard with honor whatever there is of excellencies and will by means of love bury their faults. The man who will observe this rule will feel no difficulty in preferring others before himself. This is a distinctly Christian attitude. And therefore, it makes good sense that Paul would follow it up with what is considered the first Christian hymn. Verses 5-11. through These verses have served the church so richly throughout the ages. This treatment of who Christ is has been a precious, precious gift to the church. There are actually four main Christological passages in all of the Scriptures. You have John 1, you have Colossians 1, and you have Hebrews 1. Those, by Christological, I mean teach us about the nature and the work of Jesus. John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, and Philippians chapter 2. These are it's one of the four main Christological passages. So let me read that for us again now. If you're thinking, this actually is the third time we've heard this read this morning. You're right. Alright, uh, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. This is the point at which Paul is aiming. The Philippians should be kingdom citizens and are to model the attitude of the king who is the model citizen. That's one of the, there's a lot of things that are going to be distinct about the new kingdom, but the most distinctive, or one of the most distinctive things will be it will be the first kingdom on earth where the king, the reigning king that everybody sees, is the model citizen of the kingdom. So he says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. He was born into the likeness of men. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. It is the strangest doctrine we own as Christians. Every family has a weird uncle. If we got a weird uncle doctrine, it's the doctrine of the incarnation. It's, you know, the weird uncle is the one where you're getting ready to introduce somebody into the family and you're like, let's go to him last, right? Um, this, this, this is what it feels like for Christians with the doctrine of the incarnation. It separates us from every other religion. It separates us from Judaism and Islam and Hinduism and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and Unitarians. You name it. If I'm witnessing to a Muslim and they begin to try to explain to me how we really are on common grounds together, and that happens a lot, the quickest way to show we're not on common grounds is to start talking about the doctrine of incarnation because all of a sudden things change. This is the doctrine that got all the apostles killed. This is the doctrine that led nails to be pushed through the flesh of our Lord. This is our sacred doctrine. This is our gem. I'm amused at people who claim to believe in Jesus, but they can't swallow some of the claims of the Old Testament. I honestly find that hilarious. I I just can't believe in the idea of a flood. The idea that Jonah was really swallowed by a big fish? Wait, you are alright with the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and you're troubled by a flood or a man being swallowed by a fish? You talk about swallowing a camel and choking on a gnat. J.I. Packer, in his profound book, Knowing God, if you haven't read the book, Knowing God, I beg you, I'll buy it for you. I, I will do anything in my power short of reading it for you to have you read this. Please read this book. Please read this book. Please, can I beg you? Please read this book. I love what J.I. Packer says there. And he talks about the difficulty in believing in Christianity. He's so great. He just says, let's just out it. It's the incarnation. That's what people don't like. He says, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us, lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. 
The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man. That the second person of the Godhead became the second man. Determining human destiny. The second representative head of the race. And he took humanity without loss of deity. So that Jesus of Nazareth was truly and fully divine as he was human. Paul says, and just walk through it with me quickly there. He says that Jesus was in the form of God. Now this is different than being made in the image of God. This is being the image of God. Think here 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So while he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. This does not mean that Christ was not good and uh, was not God and unwilling to grasp becoming God. There are some people who have said that. I'm slowly roasting up here, so I'm just going to roll my sleeves up. Um, that and this is important, so I don't want to pass out during it. Um, this does not mean that Christ was not God and unwilling to grasp becoming God. Nothing like that. And there have been some folks who have said that. If you say that, you make no sense of the phrase that he was in the form of God. Instead, it means he did not consider equality with God as a perk to be exploited for his own advantage. Verse 7, But he emptied himself, and he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, by emptied himself, it does not mean that he had divested himself of the attributes of God. That has often also been said. That can't happen because if you do that, you would cease being God. One of the chief attributes of God is that He is immutable. That is, He cannot change. So if Jesus can lose His deity, then He can change, and therefore He could not still be divine. Instead, I think the better way to think about this is to think about it in terms of subtraction by way of addition. Jesus emptied Himself of all of the perks of being God, not by subtracting His divinity, but by adding His humanity. One commentator put it very neatly when he said this, Jesus did not regard His equality with the Father as a pretext for grasping, but as a platform for giving. Not by abandoning His divine might and knowledge, but by adding to this a complete human nature. Just think about it. It would be a ridiculous thought to think that the Creator, which is the second person of the Trinity, think Colossians 1 here, there's other places as well, but that the Creator, prior to the fall, would have ever subjected himself to being part of the creation. That's ridiculous. Why would you do that? But it's far crazier. He subjects himself not before the fall, but after the fall, after the entrance of sick sin and sickness and foolishness and wickedness and thorns and sick and thistles and brokenness and death. That's unbelievable. I honestly can't tell you what baffles me more. The son's willingness to subject himself to our stupidity and our vile or the father's willingness to subject him 
we, we as parents, we clean boxes of clear, clear, clear uh, boxes of Kleenexes just to try to drop our kids off on the first day of school, right? The father willed that his son come endure us. Verse 8, and being found in human form. Oh, this gets wilder. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I don't want to take cheap shots, but I want to make sure we're serious about what we believe are about our Bibles. When liberal theologians think they're doing our God a favor by not talking about the costliness and the bloodiness of sin, I hope they realize they are gutting the beauty of the Incarnation at its very core. The sickness of the cross is what makes the Incarnation so radiantly beautiful. He humbles Himself to the point of dying on a cross. And notice Paul's wording. Every word counts here. He did this as a form of obedience. So Jesus is doing exactly what the Father has asked. The Father wanted His perfect Son to die and wanted Him to die on a cross. And remember, that while the cross served as the device that tortured the flesh of our Lord, it also serves as the emblem of the indescribable torment endured by His soul as He served as the curse in our stead, the target of the Father's wrath over our sin. He not only came near to our sin, but brother and sisters, He became our sin. Never enjoying an ounce of pleasure from it and fully soaking up every consequence of it. And you can hear the words of Jesus, the Son of Man, He came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a what? Ransom for many. And then verse 9. Therefore. I got to explain what the therefore is. I'm just going to start back up. I'm just playing. I'm not going to start back over. Alright, so therefore, given all that, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's so much to say here. There's so little time. Let me start by telling you, I think I have misread the main purpose of this, these verses for a long time. I've always thought that the, that, that the principal point of this, these verses is something like the way up is to be brought low, or the last shall be first, or the whoever wants to be great shall become least. Basically, even though Jesus was humiliated, 
it was, it was okay because it actually was forever exalted. And don't get me wrong, that's a wonderful application of these verses, but I don't think that's the main reason why it's included. I think the key to understanding it is to take very serious the Trinitarian language of the verses, and it's very tightly done. Listen. Therefore, verse 9, God the Father has highly exalted Him, that's the Son, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. And the Father did this so that at the name of Jesus the Son, every knee should bow in heaven and under the earth. Do you see the relational components of this? The Father is the one exalting the Son. The Father is the one bestowing on the Son the name that is above every name. And the Father does this so that everyone will one day worship the Son. It's a mutual service for one another. It's counting another is more significant than yourself. And it continues. Look at verse 11. And every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you've been around Paul's letters, you hear the word tongues, you're going to jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through chapters 12 through 14, because that's a lot of tongue stuff. Well, that actually would be helpful here. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So who is it that leads people to say that Jesus is Lord? It's the third person of the Trinity. It's the Spirit. Back to verse 11. And every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ, that's the Son, is Lord. That is the work of the Spirit. The confessing is the Spirit's role in it. So the Spirit's do at work doing what? Exalting the Son. And the Son and the Spirit are doing this for what purpose is all of this served? Look at the end of verse 11. To the glory of God the Father. So the Father's exalting the Son... So also is the Spirit, and the Son and the Spirit are exalting the Father. Tell me that is not the perfect application of let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is humility in action. The Gospel is the ultimate portrayal of humility. I got pretty excited about that when I was studying it too. I'm not going to lie. Um, so let's go all the way back. Start all over. I'm just kidding. We're, we're, we're winding down. Let's remember where we started. Verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from the love of the Father, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. The point of all this is it's a mutual exercise of humility within the Godhead. That's what's going on there. So the children of God are to be godly. They've got to have this type of attitude. They've got to be counting others as more significant than themselves. And all of this comes with one command, 
you got Paul saying, complete my joy. Now this leads to another one of my misunderstandings. I'm going to be honest with you. For the longest time, I found this very odd that Paul would put this here. Like, now wait a second, Paul. You're telling them, you all need to make me happy by counting others as more significant than yourselves. Now, that seems to me that you might not want to put both of those in the same letter. Certainly not within the same paragraph, right? You all make me happy by you all counting others more significant than yourself. Come on, Paul. Well, here's why it's right and good for Paul to say that. Just a few verses prior. Do you remember verse chapter 1, verse 21? Paul proclaims to live as Christ and to die is gain. He's debating, right? To live as Christ, to die as gain. You remember the conclusion he came to? He concluded that he would remain. Why? Because he was scared of dying. Wrong Paul. Nowhere close. He gives his reason in verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. So Paul is remaining not because he doesn't want to die and be with Christ. He really wants to go. But for their joy, for their progress in the faith. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. So now you've got Paul commanding them to work for his joy by exercising humility in the same way he has exercised humility in seeking their joy. Application. Oh, this is so straightforward. We need to count others as more significant than ourselves. Ouch. That is so hard to do. You cannot do that until you have bitten off on the Christian worldview. You will not even begin. How do we do that? We serve each other. That's exactly how we do it. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? Serve. Well, I did not need further convincing that the overemphasis in the evangelical life on a personal faith in the last few decades has proved to be problematic. This passage has further convinced me. Anyone, and there are loads of them, just knock on a few doors. Anyone who wants to tell you that it all comes down to just Him and God, or just her and Jesus, I beg them to make sense of this passage for me. What's you going to do with that? I just want to, you know, Sunday mornings, I just sit down with Andy Stanley or Charles Stanley, whoever's on TV. By the way, those that, 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 that could be much worse. Um, sit down and it's just, you know, we, we have our time. I don't need church. You make sense of this passage for me. I beg you to make sense of this passage for me. I'm not saying you cannot make progress in the, in the Christian life by not being part of the church, but I am saying it's going to be really hard. It would be like trying to make progress by taking a tricycle to try to traverse from here to California. I'm sure it could be done on you and your little tricycle, but i got a feeling at some point you're going to think there's a lot better ways. I am so encouraged, and I'm honestly, genuinely encouraged by the serving I see in our body. And I only see a speckle of it. 
Some play instruments. Some compose worship guides. Some write meeting agendas or write cards to shut-ins or send letters to sister churches. Some help teach and care for the children. Some change diapers. Some take out diapers. Some cook nuggets for the neighborhood kids. Some count the money. Some develop spreadsheets. Some change bulbs, fix toilets, clean toilets, put in new toilets, mow the grass, send out the nursery schedule, buy biscuits for our already caloried kids, order supplies, prepare elements for communion, maintain websites, write sermons, teach classes, vacuum our miles of carpet, upload sermon for podcasts. It's just a few. The list goes on. Let me tell you, these things are not the means to the end. These things are the end. This is how we are being saved and made complete. This is the tender mercy of God to every person who serves. Another misunderstanding of mine. Been around church for as long as I can remember, which is not as long as I probably should, but I... I have always known that the majority of the work is done by a minority of the folks. Just I've been in churches of all different sizes. It's always that way. It's a member of a church that had 15,000 members and the ratio was worse. Didn't get any better, it just got worse. Here's what I misunderstood. That, that's the case. There's no misunderstanding about that. What I always misunderstood is who's getting cheated. I always thought it was the minority who was being overworked who was being cheated. I always thought that's the ones who are missing out. But the more I'm familiar with the New Testament, I realize the ones getting cheated are the majority not working. You're missing out on the tender kindness of God to serve another and count them is more significant than yourself. It's an incredible kindness. So if you're here and you feel overworked, Would you thank God for His mercy in your life? What kindness. If you're here and you're a member and you're stretched to figure out how is it that I'm serving? What am I doing? Don't think that's a small issue. Tackle one of the pastors if you need to. I actually would enjoy seeing that. Um, But grab them, tackle them, constrain them. And say, you got to put me to work. Say, well, yeah, but Tim, I can't even leave my house. So what we're hearing is that you got a lot of time at home. we got a prayer list a mile long. And brother or sister, we would so appreciate you taking the time to pray for it. we got other moms right now who are in that stage of their life that they can barely get a prayer in at all. Like, God, please help me, don't kill this child. Like, that can barely even get uttered, right? I hope you know that, Lord. This is the stage of life you're in. Would you pray for them? Would you do some of their praying for them? If you're here and you're not a member of church, I invite you, come roll up your sleeves. Let each of us look not to our own interests, (laughs) but let us look to the interests of others. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to join hands. It's fitting we do this every time we have the Lord's Supper. We're going to join hands and sing, Bless be the tide that binds. Let me pray for us.